what do you want to be when you grow up? I remember getting asked that question as a kid. And I would simply respond, always a first responder. Uh, you know, whether I was a firefighter, a police officer, a paramedic, I wanted to be uh, someone that made a difference in people's lives. I wanted to do something. And we ask this question to kids, and I feel like as we get older, we forget to ask it of ourselves. Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm sure if we ask some of the room, all of us have different, different responses and different things. Uh, there was a, a classroom that was asked this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And one of the kids responded, I'm seven now. When I grow up, I want to be eight. That's a, great, that's a great idea. Uh, one of my favorites was another kid was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, when I grow up, I want to have a girlfriend. I would like to kiss her. Then I want to rule the world. That's, a, that's not how it works, you know. You realize that it's someone else's kingdom, but it's all right. Uh, another kid, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he said, I want to be a bank robber. He either knew inflation was coming or he just... <laughs> He's I, I don't know, you know, so not a good idea. Uh, but many of us, what do you want to be, what do you want to do when you grow up? We always equate it to work. We always equate it to some type of career. And the problem with that is that we value our worth based on our achievements. Uh, there was someone named Henry who was a teacher at many great schools, teacher and author, traveled the world and would share uh, the things that he was reading and the, and the teachings that, that he felt like God was giving him. And as he's at Harvard and Notre Dame and Yale, he's doing all of these teachings. And one day inside of his office, inside of Harvard, he said, you know, I have all this great success, but I feel like I'm not going anywhere. I feel like I'm not doing anything. I wonder if all of these achievements are just distractions from what I truly desire most. So then he asked himself this question out loud. He says, what decisions have you been making lately and how are they a reflection of the way you see the future? He started to think about all of his achievements. Think about the success. Think about how he traveled the world. Think about that. His name, Henry Nowen. When people would walk into a room and hear Henry Nowen was on the platform, they would start to scream. They would start to shout. They want all of his books. They want anything he could share. However, he'd say, as I'm getting older, this is the question. He would follow this question. Am I getting any closer to Jesus? And of everything that I've accomplished, maybe they've been all distractions. What do you want to be when you grow up? He thought a teacher and a professor and a theologian and an author. But at the end of the day, he said, I just want to be closer to Jesus and I don't think I'm there. What about for us? We focus so, so strongly and had such this great mindset focused on what we are doing rather than who we are becoming. And what if today... There's an opportunity for us to reset what we actually value as most important. So many of us have valued other things as more important than anything else. What I'm doing instead of who I'm becoming. So today I want to look at God's word as we're going to discover this question. How do I reset my mindset on what matters most? And the reason this is really important for us to get is because whatever we focus on, our reality becomes. And Paul, as he's writing the letter to the Philippian church, and Philippians chapter 3 is where we'll be today. He, he's writing to them and he's essentially telling them, this is halfway through the letter to the Philippian church. There's one more chapter after chapter three and he essentially writes, if you don't get this, throw the rest of it away. And I'm gonna tell you the truth today. If we don't get this portion of scripture, the rest of scripture will never make sense. Paul is saying, I'm writing this letter to you, but you can remove chapter one, remove chapter two, remove chapter four, because if you don't get this, you're not gonna get it. 
And so many of us are living a life where we've been focusing on so many other things that they've actually not been a desires in the right direction. They've been distractions that have been pulling us away from what God wants for us. I read a recent letter this past week and someone described it this way. Looking at our world and our generation, they said, it seems that we live in a culture where we are forever elsewhere. When is the last time we truly got in a moment and just were here? Not thinking about the next thing, not thinking about yesterday, not thinking about tomorrow, not thinking about lunch. What if we were just here? Just paused. So I want to pray before we go any further that that could be our moment today. Because Paul's heart and my heart today and God's heart for us is that we would get what he's about to speak to us through his word. If we don't get this, none of it will ever make sense. Let's pray. So God, we come to you. Lord, we bring you all of our distractions. We don't hide them from you. We bring them to you. What are we just saying? That we get to lay them at your feet. We lay them at the foot of the cross. Distractions and shame and guilt or, or, or just these ambitions toward the wrong thing. God, we just lay it at your feet right now. Not to pick it up, but to leave it. So that we can hear you and your word today. Lord, we don't want to hear anything else but you. We're ready for you. You know, we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bible, we're in the book of Philippians. That's in the New Testament, past the four Gospels, past the book of Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians, the letters Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Galatians, Church of Galatia, then Ephesians, Church of Ephesus. Now we get to Philippians, the church in Philippi. And as we've been talking, Paul has been in chains. He's in a Roman prison right now. He has guards all around him, and he's writing to the Philippian church who has been worried about him. In chapter 1, he says, I want you to, to just focus on God. That's, that's really where you need to be. In chapter 2, he talks about how troubles may come around and we need to be in community with one another. And then in chapter 3, he says, forget everything else I said if you don't get this. And he starts out, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, he says rejoice. He's talked about joy and rejoicing in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But this is the first time that he puts the ambition of joy with the qualifier in the Lord. Because you will not have joy anywhere else. He's like, make my joy complete. And they're like, okay, we'll do whatever you say. And he goes, no, 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 no. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on, you're probably sick of me saying all of this. He says, I never get tired of telling you these things. You might get tired of me. I'm not tired of telling you. I do it to safeguard your faith. That word in the Greek, safeguard, means to have a secure certainty of the truth. We live in a world where many people have certainty in a truth, but not the truth. Paul says, I'm writing this to you so you would have secure certainty in what is true. The real deal. Not something that we just made up. Not something we're just thinking. Not something that culture would say. I'm talking about the real thing. And then he says, before I tell you, in, this, in verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs. He's talking about false teachers, which is wild because around this time, there were people who were Gentiles, uh, essentially like you and I, who didn't grow up in the Jewish faith. So Gentiles who meet Jesus become saved, become people of the way, or Christians, as you would say, they become believers. And Gentiles were called dogs because they weren't officially Jewish people in their upbringing. Paul calls them dogs, and he's talking about not the Gentiles, not the believers. He's talking about the people that are bringing a different type of way than Jesus. 
all throughout scripture, and I feel like we forget this, and every time I come here, I want to make sure we, we share this. Anytime in scripture that the people are spoken to most harshly, they're religious people. Not the dirty, rotten people. They're religious people. Jesus says, do you know what your problem is? You're religious. And then what happens? We meet in places like this and we go out into the world and we're like, you know what your problem is? You're not religious. <laughs> Jesus was harshest on us. So Paul says, watch out for those dogs. Those people who do evil. What's the evil they're doing? Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh who are saying that you have to be circumcised. Because there was a people, a group of people that followed Paul wherever he went. They were called the Judaizers. And they would essentially say, you want to be Christian? You want to be a believer? Well, you have to be Jewish first. You have to do all of this. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Do it the right way. Don't mess up or start all over. If you don't do all of this, you'll never experience Jesus. We live in a culture today where if I can just use right from the scripture, church, watch out for those dogs. People who are out there speaking of a different life, a different way to God than simply receiving. Not on what you achieve, but what you receive. And many of us have heard people walk on platforms like this or have seen videos or TikToks, whatever it may be, and people are telling you to do certain things if you want to be saved. That is not the gospel. There is nothing good news about that. Do all of this and then you might be right. That's not good news. Good news is Jesus took care of it all for you. So Paul says, they say you must be circumcised to be saved. And he says, but us who worship the spirit by the spirit of God, he's saying we live what God is telling us. We're the ones who are truly circumcised. They're talking about something physical, but I'm talking about a spiritual transformation that's taking place in our lives. They're telling us to do something that we could never do. In case you've had difficulty with it, you can't change your heart. God can. Oh, and I've tried to change my heart. Marcus, be kind. Come on. <laughs> but when I surrender it to him, and God says, I got a lot of work to do, and I say, I know. And he does it, or everything changes. So Paul is saying, he says, we're, we're truly the ones that are willing to cut away the flesh and let God do it. And he says, this is what it looks like to be a believer. We rely on Christ, what he's done for us, and we put no confidence in human effort. What do you want to do when you grow up? Rely on Christ and put no confidence in my human effort. Can you imagine a five-year-old saying that? You'd be like, wow, okay. Well, how are you going to make money, though? You know, like, <laughs> verse 4. Paul, typical Paul. Though I could have confidence in, in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. He says, I'm talking about God's standard, but if you want to talk about the world standard, the money, the fame, the success, and everything, I have it all. Don't even try to think for a second that, that someone could top me. He says, we want to talk about pride and boasting, watch what I have. And then he goes forward to start to share his resume. And we do this too. You ask someone, what do you do for a living? Well, <laughs> well, I started out as a team member and now <laughs> I'm the CEO. So you tell me what I do for a living. Paul says, well, I'll tell you here. I was circumcised when I was eight days old, which was customary for Jewish uh, tradition. He said, I didn't become Jewish. I was born into a Jewish family. This is my family history. I'm pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. So that's my family history. Then he says, I was a member of the Pharisees. He says, let me tell you my pedigree. 
who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. He says, let me tell you my intensity. I told you my family history, my pedigree. Now here's my intensity. I was so zealous. I had this extreme excitement and enthusiasm for persecuting the church. See, Paul would go around and he would find people who were people of the way that believed that Jesus lived a perfect life, died on a cross, was crucified, was buried in a tomb, and then rose on the third day, which history would tell us that's beyond the Bible. Paul would find those people tear them from their families, put them in prison, or have them killed. Paul says, I, trust me, I, I was zealous. I have the family history, I have the pedigree, I have the intensity. And then he says, and let me tell you about my integrity. As for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. So if anyone's going to talk about how awesome they are, <laughs> I'm pretty good, right? He said, but that's the world standard. In verse 7, I have this highlighted in all of my Bibles because this helps me as I look around at anything that I claim to be my own. Verse 7, he says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. What was the thing that you needed so bad? You had to have it. Maybe it was that position. Maybe it was that burgundy polo shirt. Maybe it was that relationship. Maybe it was that raise. Maybe it was that house. Maybe it was just some, some quiet time. Man, I thought it was valuable. But I consider it worthless. And then he doubles down, verse 8. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I became righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. He's saying, these Judaizers are saying, become Jewish before you become a believer. I'm telling you, I've tried all of that and just throw it all away. It doesn't mean anything at the end of the day because I'm missing the very thing I want most. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Then this next part of the verse, we don't like this one. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. We're like, hold on. How many of us want the resurrection though? Right? Not too many today. Okay. Uh, right? <laughs> There's no resurrection without crucifixion. If you want to experience the goodness and the power and the supernatural experience of the resurrection from the dead that we experience through Christ, we have to know what it's like to be crucified daily and get rid of our flesh. Verse 11, so that one way or another I'll experience the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or I've already reached perfection. That word perfection is better translated spiritual maturity. Like full spiritual maturity. He's like, I'm working on it. But here's what I do. I press on to possess that perfection, that maturity for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ is calling us. Paul is saying, Philippian church, here's what you need to get. He's saying, new break, here's what you need to get. A Christ follower, here's what you need to get. If, if, you don't, if 
you don't allow Christ to be the firm foundation of everything, the one that he won't fail that we just sang, if you don't let him be your foundation, there will be cracks and weaknesses in your faith. There will be cracks and weaknesses in the way that you carry yourself, the way that you think about yourself. So if you don't, if you don't hear anything else Paul is saying in this letter, I want you to understand the infinite value of knowing Christ. Like there's nothing greater. I've tried everything else. And some of us in, in the room, we have the same testimony, same God story as Paul. We've tried so many other things. Paul is saying, I've done things for God and I've done things against God. Neither of them mean anything. At the end of the day, if I did not have Christ as my foundation, what I've done for God, what I've done against God, are nothing in comparison to what God, God has done for me. If I can truly know him, then I be- can become like him. That's the best thing you could ever be, is becoming like like Christ. What do you want to be when you grow up? Like Jesus. That's it. Paul Paul says, I have nothing else. And I have have all the resume. But but I I just want the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. And do you see something in here that we might miss? He doesn't say the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, that he's a Lord. Even that he is Lord. He puts a possessive pronoun, my Lord. Why does Paul say my Lord? Because in Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus with paper in his hands. He has papers in his hands to pull people out of their families, to to bring extreme division against people who are followers of the way, people that are proclaiming the resurrection from the dead, the very thing that he called out. He said, I know these people that are out there. He's carrying these letters. He's walking into people's homes, tearing them. Kids, men, women, children, everything. He's pulling them out of their homes and ensuring that they are separated from their families forever. He's walking on the road to Damascus. This is two chapters after in Acts chapter 7 when Paul is standing around and there are people that are stoning someone named Stephen. And for them to get a good arm to be able to throw, people are laying their coats right in front of Paul and Paul is smiling as someone is being martyred. Acts chapter 9, he's walking with these papers on the road to Damascus. This great light shines. And he says, who are you, Lord? Lowercase l. Like you just, you must be powerful because all of this is happening. And Jesus replies, It's me, Jesus the Christ, the one you're persecuting. They have a further conversation. And he calls out, Lord, Lord, capital L. This indeed is the Son of God. At that moment, his life was transformed forever. He he realized the wrong he had done against God. He said, man, everything has to change. And here's, here's the messy part about faith, about our faith in Jesus. His life changed forever. In the same chapter, he goes and starts telling people about Jesus. And everyone's like, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Not yet, buddy. You need about three more years of being a Christ follower. Then you can start saying stuff. They didn't even believe him. Because how radical the transformation was. And it's not that the things that he had, the pedigree and the family history and the intensity, it's not that it was necessarily bad. They were actually a lot of good things. But good things become bad things when they stop us from experiencing the best thing. And he allowed those things to be Lord of his life. But when Jesus met him, everything changed. And so all of the wrongs in his life, what scripture would call sin, 
or transgressions or iniquities. Sin literally means to aim for something and to miss the mark. Iniquity is crooked behavior and transgressions is a breaking of trust. And so Paul had all of those, just like you and I have all of those. And Jesus met him and he said, all of this sin, these wrongdoings, I have created you to be in my image and to bear my image. You are falsely bearing the image of God. That is why sin is so dangerous. He says, this sin that is happening is causing so much shame in your life. And I think we can all be honest, that's what sin does. And iniquity and transgression, it causes shame. It robs us from the joy and peace that we have in God our Father. It hinders things that are happening. It hardens our hearts. And lastly, it damages our relationships, including our relationship with God. But at this moment, something happened in his life called salvation. Salvation is the moment when we are delivered from ruin. Salvation is delivered from the penalty of sin. Because the wages of sin is death, as we would read throughout Scripture. So Jesus is standing and speaking in front of Paul and saying, this could be it. You're walking down a road that leads to complete separation from God, complete death. And for for those of us that deal with sin every day, which is every single one of us, why do we keep doing it? Because sin promises us something that we're foolish enough to believe. That it's greater, better, more fun and happier and more livelier, more hopeful than Christ could ever offer. And so we keep doing it and we're having further separation from God. Here is God and he is holy and here is us when we are with him. And then sin continually brings this separation and there's something in the gap. And that gap is a debt that we cannot afford to pay. But God. Paul would write. For God made Christ who never sinned. Who never had sin, transgression or iniquity. To be the offering of our sin. Because sin always costs something. For those of us that have experienced walking in sin, you know it costs you something, even if at first it doesn't feel like it. He says, we never sin be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Paul is saying, it's not about anything that I did. It's what God did for me. It's what's already been done. The debt is paid in the gap, in my gap, from God and myself. Grace filled the gap. Jesus filled the way. He brought me back with him. So I have this joy, which is why Paul will always talk about joy, is that I have joy because I've been pursued, forgiven, and redeemed by God. I have nothing else to share with you. That's all that matters to me. He says, grace was in the gap. He said, church, I, I went after all of the pleasures of the world but I found a superior pleasure. And I'm no longer chasing bad things. In fact, I'm not even chasing good things. I'm chasing the best thing. So he says, everything else, I've discarded it. Everything. I count it all as garbage. That word garbage uh, means, means dung, excrement. It's the image of something you would see in a stable. He says, yeah, all of, all of my degrees... In my history, everything that I had that I was so proud about, all of my competencies, I counted all as dung just so I could gain Christ because I want to be like him. And this is the danger with us too. We have many competencies and maybe it's opened great doors for you. But what happens is our competencies can take us to places our character can't keep you. So Paul is saying, if if I don't have the character of Christ, I don't want to go in that room. I don't even want to get there. So, So all of my degrees... All of the pedigree, all of the family history, everything that I have, it's dung. 
so that I could gain Christ. That word gain, Paul studied under someone named Gamaliel. Uh, Paul definitely had means. He had finances. The word gain right here means profit. He said, out of all the money I could make, (laughs) the one thing that is added to my account is a profit of grace through Jesus Christ. And this moves from salvation into sanctification. Salvation, we're saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is we're saved from the power of sin. We're continually being transformed by God so that sin is not as powerful against us anymore. So when temptation rises, we go, I know a superior pleasure. I'm not going there. I'm saved. I'm being sanctified. I believe it was C.S. Lewis. He said, God offers one thing, to be transformed daily into the image of his son. If you want anything less, then it is not God that you want. Paul is saying, I just want to be transformed. I want to experience this spiritual maturity. So, so, so if, that's, if that's what is most important in life out of all the things that I've done, he's writing this letter 30 years after his conversion moment, after his salvation. 30 years. Maybe some of, some of us in the room have been saved for 30 years and we forgot what that moment was like when Christ met us. He didn't meet us with a judgment that said, you are bad. He met us with grace that said, I am good. And we can't forget it. If you've forgotten that moment, I want to encourage you to go back into that moment from time to time. What Christ has done for you. I was sharing with our team last week. Um, Growing up, I did many things. There was a lot of sins and iniquities and transgressions. Um, Notice that's how scripture talks about sin. It doesn't call them mistakes. Imagine if there was a transgression, a breaking of trust in your relationship, and you said, mistakes happened. You said, I broke your trust. So there was a lot of sins, iniquity, and transgressions on my part in my life. And after burying six of my friends through different things that we were doing, things we were involved with, the seventh friend passed away by a, a group of people who didn't want him to live anymore. I remember going to the funeral home, and it was this church. We walk in there, and I'm in the midst of addiction. I'm in the midst of anger, realizing that my anger has gotten the best of me, and I'm doing things that are, are not bearing the image of God. I didn't, even, I didn't even fully understand it, but I just knew it wasn't right. There's something within us. There's this morality within us that says, I know what I'm doing is not right. I was sick of burying my friends. The pastor walks up to the platform, puts his hands like this. He looks up and I felt like he was talking right to me and looking right at me. He says, it doesn't have to be this way. And it's one of the things that started me on my journey toward Jesus because it didn't have to be that way anymore. Paul is saying, I, I count all of it just it can go. And maybe you're here thinking, is this the best there is? No. It doesn't have to be this way. Maybe even waiting for that moment to fully experience Christ. Let me tell you today, it doesn't have to be that way. Paul is saying, everything that you have experienced to this point so far without Christ, I'm telling you, it doesn't even compare. It's in its complete different category. There's stuff that you have done and there's everything that God has done for you. 
and the holiness of God and the brokenness of humanity, the gap in between is filled with God's grace and his goodness. So Paul says, that's all what I want to profit. Paul says, my bank account, I want to say, full of, not money, grace. Forgiveness, redemption, love, and joy. So Paul says, so for that sake, I'm going to keep moving forward with purpose. I've heard it said that the life of, the, of a believer is like riding a bicycle. If you're not moving forward, you're going to fall off. Paul is saying, I have to keep walking forward. Which is why he would say multiple times, I don't achieve, act like I'm achieving anything, but I focus on one thing. There's one focus I have. We need to reset our mindset on what matters most. He says, I forget the past, all of my success. All of it. And I look forward to what lies ahead. And for so many of us, we have difficulty forgetting our past. And, and I always like to share this when we're looking at scripture and we see the word remember or forget. Uh, the word forget does not mean, like there's a passage that says essentially God takes our sins and, and remembers them no more. It's not like God has amnesia. It means that he doesn't remember them in a way to hold them to your account. And I'm so thankful for that. So the word forget is the complete opposite of that. So I remember it no more because I don't want to hold it to my account. And for so many of us, the enemy's voice is so loud and he says, do you know how bad you are? Do you know how many things that you've done? I remember someone telling me, Marcus, whenever the enemy brings up the, your past, you tell him his future. Okay. <laughs> so that's what I do. When the enemy says, Marcus, do you know how many people you've hurt? Do you know how many bad things you've done? Do you know how, how much pride was in your life and how much anger and, and the fights and all of these things? And, and I go, dude, you know where you're going? Right now you can live free, but one day you're going to be locked up, homie. You're done. And I like to say this to the devil. You don't even have a mother. That's what I tell him. Because <laughs> he doesn't, you know. I get to be with Christ forever. Forever. I no longer need to listen to his lies. So I'm just going to focus on this one thing. When Paul is writing the one thing, the, the people at the time would have immediately thought back to the one things in Scripture. Like when the rich young ruler walked up to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? I, I followed all of the laws. I've done this. I've done that. And Jesus says, there's one thing that you must do. Sell everything you have, give it to those in need, and follow me. And the rich young ruler says, no. Or maybe they thought of Mary and Martha. When Jesus walks into their home and, and Martha is out there and, and she's just doing everything she needs to do, as we all would, making sure that Jesus is comfortable and cooking food and cleaning everything. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha walks up and says, Jesus, are you not paying attention to all of this? Look at everything that I'm doing. And Jesus says, there's one thing that is the most important, and she has chosen it sitting at my feet. Or maybe they thought of David in Psalm 27. The one thing I ask of the Lord, if I'm going to ask God anything, it's this. The thing I seek most is to live, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. I just want to be with him. Sin separates. Sanctification brings us closer. Because if we just want to get in the presence of God, it's no longer distance, it's his presence. 
David is saying, I just want to get there. Paul is saying, I just want to get there and I want to stay there. I'm not talking about a distracted position, how many of us feel forever elsewhere. David and Paul and even Christ with his father, he's saying, I have this wholehearted commitment to be passionately pursuing my creator. What if that's the one thing we could focus on just to get there? And why is the presence of God something that we should all be asking him for? Because in the presence of God, there's protection. That's what David is specifically speaking to in this. There's protection, then there's also provision. And the best part is there's transformation. How many of us want to experience the protection of God, the provision of God, and the transformation to become more and more like his son? I'm in. So Paul says, if that's what you want, and do like I'm doing, just press on to reach the end of the race. And receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. That word press on is the same verb that he used when I was zealous and I persecuted the church. Dioko in the Greek. He's saying, I used to persecute the church, now I'm in pursuit of Christ. I press on. And many of us, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you're wondering why you're in a season where you feel like things are pressing down like I talked last week. And you feel like, I'm just under a lot of pressure. Well, that's because we need to press. There's no reason to press if there's no resistance. There's gonna be some resistance. Paul is saying, just, I, I want you to press on. Keep going, keep following him. And I know it may get tough, but I want you to keep going. And he likens it to a race. I love Paul because he always brought up some different kind of sports analogies, whether it was wrestling or fighting or boxing or, or running, whatever it was. He brings in this idea of a race. And that race is to meet Christ, to become like Christ, to share Christ, and to live eternally with Christ. He says, as you're on this race, keep pushing, keep pressing, because you need him along the way. And there are other people who need him. And they don't even realize that the race they're running in is not towards what matters most. Like many of us that have been running a race that wasn't towards what matters most. Paul says, tell them, they have to know. And if you're in a season where you're saying, I'm, I'm pressing on, I'm just tired. Well, in marathons or Ironmans or triathlons, there's aid stations along the way. And the aid station is for you to receive some type of help to get water, uh, maybe if you need to relieve yourself uh, to receive some type of like gel and electrolytes, but then to get back in the race. It's not to stop forever. So in our life, in our spiritual walk, we have aid stations beginning our week in worship like this. I know how my week feels without this aid station. I feel like I'm running with nothing. Belonging in a life group. That's, that's, a, that's a second aid station. I have to be with my people. Because if I'm not, I'm trying to run this race alone and I have nothing. I need someone that for a moment I could pass the baton to and slow down for a minute just so I could pick up the next baton as it comes. And then being in the church by serving. Because if I'm going to run this race, I need to show others what it's like to find Christ, to become like Christ, to share Christ, to live eternity with Christ. We need the aid stations. And Paul tells them all of this. And this is after he wrote the letter to the church in Corinth. This is 30 years after his, his moment with Christ when he was saved. 
But in the church to Corinth, he would write something that I find so beautiful. And it's something that I believe many of us have a privilege of being. And not just pastors, not just those of us that are on the platform, those of you that are on your platforms. He says, so we're Christ ambassadors. We're Christ ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ. When we plead, come back to God. He says, that's, that's why I'm here. And you may be thinking, Marcus, you don't know how much I have done. I don't. And I know I share a lot of my story on this platform often, and we love being vulnerable as a church, but, but you don't know everything I have done. But Jesus does. God does. And he loves me still. And so how could I ever get back with God? Remember, this is, this is the verse right before the one we already read. He's saying, we speak for God when we say, come back to God. And you're thinking, I was never with him. Yes, you were. That's the beauty. We have this perfect relationship with God and sin gets in between it. And it's a debt that we couldn't pay. So Jesus came to live a life that we couldn't live, to die a death we should have died, to pay a debt that we couldn't pay. So Paul is saying, come back to God. And if you're like me, when I heard Billy Graham share that in 2004, all I could think was how. Paul continues, come back to God. Here's how. What do I have to do? What, what, I can't wait. What do I have to do? I'll do it all. God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. What do I have to do? God made Christ who never sinned to experience the weight of sin, past, present, and future, so that we could be made right. Marcus, what do I have to do? For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering of our sin, so that we could be made right with God. Well, how many times do I need to come to church? How many verses of the Bible should I have to memorize? What do I have to do? There's gotta be some steps I need. Marcus, tell me what to do and I'll do it. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God. There's no better image uh, that I have in ministry than we had a worship night here, which we have another one coming up in October. Um, very excited for it. Um, Karen, our student pastor, she painted, she, she was telling me she, she wasn't sure what she was going to paint. She said she felt like God was telling her what to paint as she was painting. And this is now in my office. And it's Jesus on the cross. And you may not be able to see it, but then there's the tomb with the stone rolled away. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sins so we could be made right with God. What do I have to do? The one thing I ask, the one thing I seek is to live in the house of the Lord forever, to seek his face, to dwell on his perfections, and to live in his temple. I just want to look at Christ. That is it. If I look at him, if I get near him, I'll become like him. Because he is the one who sacrificed for me. What do I have to do? I'll say it again, for God made Christ who never sinned, 
to be the offering for our sin so we could be made right with God. For us, the opportunity is to receive, not to achieve. Doesn't matter how long you have known Christ or how long you haven't known Christ or how far you feel away from him or how many broken relationships there are in the balance. And Marcus, if you knew what I did last night or this morning or 25 years ago or the time that I had to serve, whatever it was, I'm telling you, look to Christ and receive him. That's it. The rest is taken care of along the way. The moment of salvation, justification, when we are made right in the eyes of God. no better story than the one I've heard. I heard recently about a young boy in South Florida. He came home from school on a hot day and he just wanted to get into the pond near his house. So he runs off the bus, grabs his backpack, throws it inside the house and says, bye mom. He rips off his shirt and just keeps running and goes to the pond about a half a mile down the road. The mom is running behind him like, this is not how we do things. And she looks and she just has a smile on his face because he's just enjoying God's creation. And that smile turns into extreme fear when she sees something in the water and she starts shouting, come back, come back, come back, get out of the water, get out of the water, come back. And she is shouting at the top of her lungs. Neighbors are looking at her. People are starting to come out of their houses. The little boy hears his mom, stops and turns around and she's waving her arms and she's screaming. He says, okay, I must have forgotten something, did something wrong. He starts to swim back. Then he sees out of the side of his, out of his eye, he sees an alligator, two eyes popped up out of the water. He starts to swim as fast as he possibly could to get there as fast as he possibly could. The mom is starting to run in the water. The neighbors are starting to run in the water to grab this young little boy. She grabs his arms and at the same time, the alligator grabs his legs. And she starts shaking and shaking. This, this neighbor who's a man, he starts hitting the top of the alligator. And then a few of the neighbors pull the alligator's teeth open. And the mom grabs the boy and she falls on her back. Paramedics are called, taken to the hospital. The boy survives. A few weeks into his healing, a news reporter comes in. And realizes the boy is feeling much better. He says, so what happened and where did you get bit? The boy tells him the story. And he starts showing his legs where the alligator bit him and I'm just glad I get to keep my legs. And then the boy starts crying and the reporter says, What's, you're okay now. He says, those are my legs, but look at my arms. I have marks, scratches and bruises here too because my mom wouldn't let go. My mom wouldn't let me go. And for so many of us, we have thought and I myself had thought that God had let me go to be devoured by whatever else was devouring me. But he never let me go. So what do I have to do? He's already reaching out. I have to go, I'll take your help, God, because I can't do this anymore. I want to pray with you. I want us to experience what Paul experienced. I want us to experience what he's telling the Philippian church. If you don't get this, you'll get nothing else. Would you pray with me? God, so many of us 
we've, we've been in the pond and we've had things uh, attacking us, Lord God. It's, it's been sin that's weighing us down. We feel like we're sinking. We feel like these sins, these transgressions, these iniquities, these things that are pulling us away from you. God, we don't even know how to get out. And we've tried everything. We've tried the three steps and the five steps and the different things people are talking about. We tried the 12 steps. God, we just need you. God, remind us, you're the one who's reaching out to us and you've never let go. So what do we have to do? It's not what we achieve, it's what we receive. So Lord, right now we want to receive you. Church, if you're in here and you haven't made that decision, or you're saying, I've been in this race for a long time and I feel like I've just stopped, I've slowed down. If you're saying, today is the day that I press on like Paul. If you're saying, Marcus, I, I've, never, I've never experienced Jesus like that. You're saying my life can be changed forever? Yes, forever, in an instant. Then you're saying, yeah, then I want that. I want to give an opportunity for those of us in the room to make a decision for Jesus. It's the best decision you can ever make. It's better than anything that you've ever done before. It's better than what your resume is, what your family history, what your pedigree, your intensity, your integrity, whatever it is. Jesus is better. So if that's you in the room, we do this because this is between you and God, but we just want to pray with you. If you just lift your hand, hey, I want to make that decision today. I'm done holding out. I see you. I see you. I see you. Even online, you can just type in yes. It's about what you receive. I want to pray, and would you just repeat after me? Because we all need this. Just say, God, I've tried so hard to do this myself. And it's not working. So right now, I give up. I give myself to you. I receive your forgiveness. Teach me how to become like you. Change me forever. In your name we pray. Amen. Give God a hand because we serve a powerful, mighty, wonderful God.